Solitaire's Novelcast, Do the Job, Part 4. Solitaire's Novelcast is where I take novels that I, Corey Strode, have written and turn them into audiobooks. This is part four of the professional wrestling mystery novel set in the 1980s. What you need to know. Lance is a private detective who was once a champ in the upper Midwest for a regional professional wrestling federation. He retired a few years ago due to injury, but now he's being drawn back into that world as he was asked to investigate the heroin overdose of one of the professional wrestlers who was about to take a contract with a large organization that was destroying the territories in the 80s. And now, part four. Chapter three. I couldn't work on the case for the next two weeks because something bigger came up. A woman came into the office bringing a picture of her 16-year-old daughter and a story that made me take her case. Her daughter took off with a 19-year-old boyfriend and she didn't know where they'd gone. The case consumed me, as they sometimes do. And I was working on it even when I wasn't. I did the stuff I was supposed to do. Check with the police to see what they'd found out. But Katie's girls were the ones who got me the information I needed. The boy had family down in Memphis, but it wasn't exactly a family-friendly type of setup. I discovered that they'd stolen a car. The girl hadn't known the car was stolen until it broke down their second day in Memphis. The boy just left it by the side of the road. He'd promised her that they'd have a new life together and they could be grown-ups finally. What he gave her was a couch in an apartment with his drug dealer mother, and when a small stash of money ran out, he got her a job slinging drinks at a strip club. From there, it was a matter of hours before the boyfriend and the owner let her know that she could take a hell of a lot more money on stage showing off those tits of hers rather than making minimum wage with meager tips, bringing drinks to men who couldn't afford to go to a good strip club. Two weeks later, I'd brought her home to her mother, gotten the boyfriend and the strip club owners so scared of me that they wouldn't go north of Missouri, and a grateful mother writing me a check that was below my normal fee for the time put in, but probably more than she could afford without doing without for a long time. That night when I got home, my mind was yelling at me to get down to the gym, work the poison out of my system, try to get back to a life that wasn't covered in grime. I hadn't seen Katie for at least a week and a half of that case. She hadn't been at the office when I finished up with the mom, so when I walked in the door I was greeted by a hug filled with plaid. She was wearing a long plaid skirt that I could easily tell she'd put together on her own in one of my old t-shirts. We stayed in that embrace for a long time, but to be honest, I would have been happy to stay in those arms as long as I was down in Memphis to make up for the missing time. She pulled me into the kitchen where she'd put together a meal that I was surprised she'd taken the time to make. I was the cook of the house, even though my cookbook was primarily that month's issue of muscle and fitness. She was more than happy to just go along. However, the table had a baked pasta dish 
fresh bread that had been buttered with melted garlic butter, and a salad that looked like a bunch of lawn clippings, and a small bowl of fresh fruit with cottage cheese in the middle of each plate. I wasn't a big fan of wine, but she had a bottle of something that said it was white and looked more pink to me. She didn't ask about the case I'd been on at all, but kept talking about what she'd been up to while I was gone. We talked a couple of times a day while I was down in Memphis. One call from the office phone for the business stuff, and one call before we went to sleep for the other stuff, but I felt like I hadn't seen her in months. We lingered over the dinner. When I complimented her, she said that she'd called a friend who had helped her put it together. The salad was actually good, but I knew better than to ask what was in it, because as she talked, it was pretty clear that her part in the meal was paying the bill at Byerly's when her friend was done buying everything needed to put it together. We both cleared everything away, and as we were washing the dishes, she said, That trip. That's why we do this, isn't it? I nodded. Look, I don't want to set myself up as some kind of real-life baby face. Lord knows I've done enough things to be considered one of the dirtiest heels you'll ever know. I've cut corners. I've ruined people's careers. Before I met Katie, I slept with a lot of women who don't go into it thinking that they were simply an alternative to rubbing one out while watching hotel porn. I still had no problem doing some dirty shit in order to crack a case or get the goods on someone I was paid to. When I chose to get my license, I knew that most of the job would be to find people with their pants down. Literally. There were cases like this one, though. Cases when you fix something, when you save someone, where what you do matters more than taking dirty pictures or finding hidden money. That's why I showed up every weekday, sat in my plasterboard office and listened to people. One in twenty. That was enough to keep me going. We didn't talk about it. We just knew it. We understood. Sure, it was nice to have a big house and the toys and the clothes we liked, but there was no way Katie would have put together a dinner she couldn't cook if I'd gone to Florida for two weeks to find out if Mr. Jones was getting his fitness trainer drunk enough to sleep with him. The check was the same, but the payoff was different. When we were done putting everything away, it was like a switch got turned on and we couldn't keep our hands off each other. I'd missed the feel of her lips, the way she ran her hands through my hair when we kissed, the feel of the small of her back. It wasn't long before I knew what the t-shirt and the long skirt were hiding, and even though I'd long known those secrets, I explored it as if it were the first time. The next morning she was up before me, had our coffee mugs full, my protein shake ready. There's a file of paperwork on the kitchen table for me to go through on my way to the office. Getting out of bed was one of the hardest things I'd done in a while. Hotels can have far more expensive beds with perfectly temperature-controlled rooms, scientifically chosen wall colors to promote relaxation. However, our tired old mattress on its hand-me-down frame was so much better than those beds, I contemplated retiring from the world and spending my days lying there. A book in my hand, the radio on, and Katie coming in every so often to share the warmth of being under the afghan we bought from some Sunday school group wanting to fund a trip to somewhere. She drove us to her office, partly so that I could go through the paperwork and sign off on things, partly because she wanted control of the radio. I liked listening to news in the morning because it made me feel like I was connected to the rest of the world and reasonably intelligent. She liked music because the news simply depressed her. So she played a CD by some band called The Smiths, where the lead singer sounded as if he was composing a suicide note with every song. I read over expense reports, affixing my name to them so the check could go out. It was a Friday. While I wanted to work Billy's case immediately, I spent my morning with the mundane annoyances of paperwork and returning calls. As I completed each task, I crossed them off my list Katie had given me, 
and wondered if anyone was watching this on TV would have stayed tuned for more than three minutes. After a quick sandwich, I pulled out the file I'd been waiting to get to all day. Inside were the police reports and coroner's reports on Mikey's death. His body was found in his apartment. They noted that they were called to the scene by a neighbor who had seen the door to the apartment slightly ajar. That didn't fit for me. Mikey, like the rest of us in the business, was pretty fastidious about making sure things were secure. Training in the business itself tended to make you paranoid, and it bled into every aspect of your life. His wife was already in New York State, looking for an apartment, so she had to be notified by phone. They hadn't had any kids, and they never talked about it. She was quiet, didn't much like the business, seemed to be upset every time I saw her before all of this happened. I'd assumed that she just blamed the business for his drug use and felt that if he'd picked out a quiet, nice job in a bland office with desks and phones and music, he never would have become a drug addict. She also had the scars of his drug use, none physical but on her personality, and it showed when I talked to her before all of this. Sitting there with my pen and paper, I thought about how much strength it must have taken for her to reach out to Billy and tell him to contact me to do this. The police ruled it an accidental overdose. They noted there was no suicide note, and they had just signed a lucrative contract there was so, so there was no sign of a suicide motive. Myself, I thought that using heroin was automatically suicide, even though the person involved might not know it. Then again, Mikey knew it. He knew that getting back up on that horse was the quickest way to death, and after all he'd been through, he knew it better than any of the rest of us. He talked about it with anyone who would listen. They had some other observations that didn't make a lot of sense to me, saying that there was a needle and surgical tubing in the bathroom garbage, which were tested and found to have drug residue. That didn't fit for me either, since Mikey snorted his heroin. They noted that his forehead was massively scarred, but he had no needle tracks. The scarring came from years of blading himself in the ring. One of the more barbaric things we had to do in the ring was to use concealed razor blades to cut our foreheads when we wanted to make a match more dramatic. A forehead cut bleeds a lot more than in other places, and when that blood mixes with sweat, it can make you look like your skull has been busted open. I can't tell you how many people, trying to prove wrestling was fake, tell me they knew we used blood capsules. Hell, I can't tell you how many times I wish we used blood capsules instead of simply dragging that blade across your forehead when you're down on the mat or the floor, desperately trying to hide what you're doing from the fans. The coroner's report didn't give me anything new just a paper that showed he had a huge amount of heroin in his system when he died. No testing on if he'd been using before. No testing on any other problems. It was as if they found the heroin in his system and dismissed him as another dead junkie. It happens all the time. Someone dies because of some drug they're pumping into their system, legal or illegal. They consider it closed and simple, but it never is. There's always a reason. Someone starts using the stuff and always a reason why it wins. Mikey used it to dull the pain of being slammed on a mat over and over five shows a week unless the territory was doing well then it was even more. He kicked it I thought. I pulled out a legal pad and worked again on putting together the timeline of what I knew. He'd gotten the contract offer, told people and wrapped up his affairs for a week. He'd gotten into an argument with Eddie and three days later he was dead. There were too many gaps too many holes, too many questions, and not enough answers that were easy to find. He died somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night. 
I made a few phone calls to try and nail down some more of what happened during the last two weeks. After talking to his landlord and a call to Eddie for a little more information, I'd filled in that he'd spent a couple of days with Larry Hoyle, who ran a mid-sized Twin Cities promotion before he and Eddie had gotten into their fight. Larry was another person I'd lost touch with over the last few years. The landlord let me know that Mikey had been on a month-to-month basis with his lease for the last year. And since he paid early, they didn't have a problem with that. He told them that he was moving out on the 24th and would like his damage deposit mailed to him out east, but he didn't have a place yet, so he'd send along the address once he was settled. I'd ruled out suicide myself, not just because I knew Mikey and knew he was a fighter. On top of that, it wouldn't fit with the events. He wasn't giving things away. He was putting things together. Then again, the drug use didn't make a lot of sense either. One of the things that got got him the shot at the big time was how passionate he was about not using drugs and making sure the rest of the workers didn't either. There was a big wild card in how he would have reacted to Eddie and him having a falling out. He and Eddie had been closer than brothers most of their career, and they had both broken into the business while I was still in grade school. Would he have gone out on a bender if he and Eddie were done? I know when I realized my time in the business was done, I took it hard. I didn't just lose a job. I lost who I was. I lost my family. You get so enmeshed in the business, it feels like family. Back when I was in the business, even if you were in a smaller territory, you were with the workers for stretches of 15 to 30 days on the road, trudging from town to town, setting up the ring, doing the show, and moving on to the next town. There were guys who would work a territory for a while and move on to the next one, but I wasn't one of those guys. I was one of the hometown workers, and Larry would no more let me go on to another territory than he would his own son. When I was told I couldn't get in the ring anymore, I knew I wasn't going to be out on the road with the workers anymore, and that feeling of belonging was gone. Katie helped me through those dark times and dropped the business at the same time. Even with her help, it was rough. I drank too much, I got too mad, probably fought too much. Would Mikey have reacted to the same thing, jumping back on drugs? I waited to call Nancy and see if I could fill in some more of the missing pieces, but I knew that I was giving her a call on Friday afternoon to talk about her dead husband would be the best way to ruin her weekend. I made a note to call her and wrote down a series of questions I wanted to go over. I find that if I plan those sorts of calls carefully and don't get off track, I can get through the painful aspects of it all. Just doing my job, ma'am. Just another quick question, ma'am, and then I'll be out of your hair. The quicker we get through this, the quicker I can find out what happened, ma'am. Another of those necessary evils that come with prying into people's lives to find out their secrets. I was getting ready to call Billy to ask him about some of the things on my timeline when there was a knock on the door. Come on in, I said, knowing that Katie would do her expert job at keeping away anyone who I wouldn't want to talk to when my door was shut. I was surprised to see her there. Are we going home tonight, or are you planning on having a sleepover, she said. I looked at the clock for the first time since lunch and saw it was close to seven, meaning the office had been closed for around two hours. Why didn't you get me sooner? She shrugged, casting her light blue eyes to the sky and said, I don't know, maybe because I figured you were working on something? I started putting away the folders, files, and papers. I had their folders open, but it was easy to slide everything back into their labeled files and then into the file drawer of my desk. I looked up and said, Time got away from me. I'm sorry. She frowned at me and said, Do I need to go into why I think this case is a bad idea? No, I said, because I don't need another talk about how it won't make us any money. 
It's not why I'm doing it. She flopped down in the chair next to me and said, It's more than just the money. It's the business. You still have the sickness. I do not, I said, finishing up putting things away and leaving my list of things to do on Monday next to my phone. Bullshit, she said quietly. I saw how you were when you came back from Eddie's camp. You looked like a little kid wanted to talk about all the different kids trying out. You couldn't stop going on and on about it, how it felt to tell your story, how much you'd miss talking to them and the like. I know, believe me, I know. I know what it's like to hear the crowd roar, even if it's just a hundred or so people. I know what it feels like to get them to love you or hate you within a minute. I saw it all, remember? I was there when you became champion and they rushed the ring and carried you around on their shoulders, pissing off the security people. I saw how much you loved it when you turned heel a month later. Remember how you would count how many of the folding chairs they threw into the ring? Fuck, man. I was there those nights when you said you couldn't get in the ring again. I was the one you talked to when you said you couldn't handle being washed up in a has-been at 35. I was there when you would be a zombie around the house until those nights when you went to the shows and gave a goodbye to the fans and did some ring announcing. It's a goddamn sickness, and you put it behind you until this case. You do good work, but you won't be able to do it if you still spend your days trying to be involved in the business. Don't you re Do you really want to be a broken-down wrestler who shows up for the cheap pop of a crowd or spending your time in the ring as a referee telling guys how to get cheers or booze? She looked at me exactly the same way she had all those years ago, when I was at the bottom, looking for some way out. I knew she was right, but I also knew I had to work this case. Things weren't falling into place, and the police wouldn't look into it. They thought it was cut and dried, but something kept nagging me about it all. I couldn't point to anything other than the fact that I knew Mikey, and I knew he wouldn't do it. I need to do this, but you're wrong about why, I finally said. Fine. Enlighten me, she said. Mikey was a friend. I worked with him in the ring for years, traveled with him for those years. I knew him when he was at the bottom as well. I knew he was doing drugs. Hell, we all did. But until Billy got us together and told us we needed to do something, I didn't say anything. As long as he kept up his end of the match and no one got hurt, I didn't say anything. I thought it was the code. Don't say anything as long as it doesn't affect what goes on in the ring. And if one worker wants to do drugs, fuck the ring rats, get drunk every night, it wasn't any of my business. Billy told me it was our responsibility, that we were a brotherhood. We put our lives in each other's hands every night, and that meant we had to take care of each other. We say that lying on the mat while the referee counts to three is doing the job, but he taught me that taking care of each other is the job. Now I need to do the job. I'm the only one who can so that means it's up to me. She had a sour look on her face, but I was done. I wasn't going to give any more reasons as to why I was doing what I did, and if Katie didn't like it, she would have to deal with that. Fine, she said. I still think it's a bad idea, and if you start talking about being involved in the business, I'll remind you of my vow. If you get in that ring again, I'll be gone. I don't care how good you are at what you do. You won't be able to find me. I won't watch you kill yourself in the ring or ruin yourself by getting involved in that business again. I love you, and I love you so much that I don't ever want to see you go through that again. Am I clear? Crystal, I said. Good. And I also wanted you to know that you do good in this world, too.
We got the contract. For the first time since she had come in, she had a smile. One of the amazing things about Katie was that when she smiled, it was almost all with her eyes. She had a small, cute little mouth, but when she was small, she felt she had bad teeth, so she had a very restrained smile. She would laugh loud, but her smile was tight, controlled, but always showed in her eyes. Well, I'd say we should celebrate, but we did that last night. Oh, I think we could celebrate two nights in a row, but this time we're stopping for takeout. Deal, I said, getting up, throwing on my jacket, and turning out the lights. The next night I was at the Bloomington National Guard Armory to see the show put on by Dan Lammers. Ten years ago it would have been at the St. Paul Civic Center and it would have sold out a week in advance, but his federation had fallen on hard times, and now he was bringing his workers in front of a crowd of about 300 people on folding chairs. Katie had groused a bit about my going, but I promised that I wouldn't go near the ring. I'd ask my questions, watch a show, and not let Dan get me in the ring to say goodbye to the fans. I was going to stick to it as well, since I had done so many tearful goodbye speeches in the six months after my injury, I honestly think that everybody in the upper Midwest had seen me give one. I also didn't think it would be right to glom onto other people's cheers for a cheap pop. I called him the morning of the show, and said I wanted to ask him and some of the workers about Mikey, and he sounded as if I'd just punched him in the gut. He agreed, but it was clear he was still upset about the death. I got there early so I could get into the locker room without any fans seeing me there, and when I got back behind the curtain, I was surprised at how few people there were backstage. Dan and his son were running things, and they had their wives ready to sell tickets at the door. There were only fifteen wrestlers getting ready, and all of them greeted me as I walked in. I nodded and waved and made a beeline for Dan. "'Good to see you, champ,' he said. He called everyone who ever carried the belt champ and the joke was that he did it because he'd put the belt on so many guys he couldn't keep track of all their names. I'd held it for eight months, two as a face and six as a heel until I was injured. It was one of the longer title reigns from the time since attendance was already starting to get soft back then. After I was out it fell apart with Brad hiring away about a third of his locker room and all of the TV production people. Anyone who could draw him wasn't either related to Dan or unable to be on the road 300 days a year got snapped up pretty fast. Dan was still pissed off about it. Tonight he looked the way he always had. He was in a suit, which always seemed weird to me, since he only wore a suit when he was announcing. Most of the time he wore jeans and a polo shirt, but I always remembered him in his wrestling tights. He was the main attraction for his promotion until the mid-70s, when he started to think he was too old to hang with the young talent. He still looked like an athlete, just an older one. He was half a head taller than me, barrel-chested and bald as could be. His face was lined with age, and his forehead looked like it was nothing but scar tissue. His blue eyes were deep-set, surrounded by more lines than I remembered. He had the nose of a hawk. His son, Gene, looked like a smaller version of him, only with hair and less age. He wasn't wearing a suit. He looked comfortable in a pair of jeans and a polo. I wondered if his dad still dressed him, but I decided to keep that thought to myself. I wasn't part of this world anymore, and only workers can joke with the workers. Thanks for your time, I said, pulling out my legal pad. I'm just wanting to put some pieces together for Mikey's widow. She said that you two had a falling out. I noticed that he nodded at Jean, and he made himself scarce before Dan, Dan said anything. Yeah, we had it out. He called me up and let me know that Brad had offered him a deal. I told him that he shouldn't take it, that Brad is a worthless bastard working to ruin our business. But he didn't listen. 
Must have had money stuffed in his ears. A fucking TV guy's killing me. He took most of my young guys, some of the production people I had, and both my announcers. All in the same month. Can you believe that shit? I knew how Dan ran his business, and technically he couldn't say that Brad was stealing anyone. He didn't even he didn't give contracts. Didn't even give a promise. He just assumed that someone would keep showing up until he'd said they were done. Sure, the announcers had been with him for over ten years, but Dan never gave anyone a contract, said it was a bad idea for the workers. Truth is, it made it so Dan could drop you if you felt like you weren't drawing the fans without worrying about having to deal with anything legal. He'd tell you if he wanted you at the next show. I was the champion and he didn't have me under contract. Just told me where to be next, that he'd pay me out of the money he'd pulled in that night. My early days, when I was down at the bottom of the roster, there were a few nights when Dan pulled the we ran out of money before I got to you, but I'll make it up to you crap he did whenever the business got weak or he was short on money personally. Yeah, it sucks. But I want to know what you two said to each other, I said, pressing him back on topic. If you didn't keep Dan focused, he'd be off about how he's always getting screwed for the next hour. The TV stations weren't giving him good spots or were stiffing him on his half of the advertising revenue. The fans weren't buying anything, or they were buying a lot and the venue wasn't telling the truth about the concessions money, or some wrestler demanded too much money and it was coming out of his cut. There were millions of reasons why Dan wasn't successful, but he sure had a big house out on Lake Minnetonka and a new sports car that was parked right next to the building, taking up two spots so no one would scratch it. I told him what I thought. I told him Brad is killing the territories. Killing off us smaller promotions who don't have a fucking TV network backing them, and he would destroy the business. Have you seen his shows? I shook my head and he continued, his voice getting a little more loud and angry every time he took a breath. It's all this superhero crap. No one works the match. They just rush through a bunch of spots, get a lot of crowd pops, and then get to a finisher. They aren't even trying to make it look like a contest anymore. I can't believe anyone would watch it with the workers he has working for him. They all look like a bunch of goddamn bodybuilders who couldn't put a real hold on to save their lives. So I told him what I thought. I told him he was going to take the food off a lot of families' tables and he should feel responsible for it. I also told him that if I had to shut down and put all my workers out of work, it was on his head. He was trying to tell me that Brad wanted to work out a deal where some of my workers could work on some of the TV tapings. He even said that Brad would be willing to use my promotion as a minor league where some of the younger workers could get ring time before being called up to the main roster. Minor league? I've got a fucking world title here. We do shows in Europe, Japan, Africa, and we're going to be a minor league now? I told him I didn't want any part of it, and if Brad tried to run my territory, it might get dangerous for him. I didn't show any emotion, and it even stopped writing in my notebook. Someone who didn't know Dan would immediately run to the phone and call the cops, especially since Brad had a TV taping the next day. However, Dan was in full promo mode, and if there would have been a camera or a crowd for him to give his speech in front of, he would have. Still, I had no idea Dan hated Brad's company that much. I'd heard rumors that some of the smaller promotions were going to do something to Brad when he started his plan to go national. I couldn't dismiss him either, because back before the territories were sorted out, there were a lot of incidents where someone would try to run a show in someone's territory. I'd heard about guys storming another guy's show with clubs and guns to scare fans out of the arenas. But that was so long ago that all the stories were second-hand at best. There was a loose agreement between all of the bigger promotions about who ran where. 
They even used the organization to trade talent. Say when someone had been used up in one territory, he went to another territory where he'd be fresh. They even agreed on who the world champion would be, and that wrestler would go into a territory for a few months and let the local workers work with them. And the locals would lose in such a way that the local fans could say, if that bastard hadn't cheated, our hero would have been the champion. Dan was such a crotchety bastard, he didn't even want to be part of that group. But he was affiliated enough that he didn't run anybody else's territory, and he would trade talent with them. When I was champion, I faced quite a few of their guys as they came through town. But they never gave Dan the champion simply because he had his own. Dan sat down and looked a bit sheepish as he said, Forget that. I'm just under a lot of pressure. We got a show here tonight, and I want to make sure the workers get paid. I'm sorry. We were talking about Mikey, right? Yeah, I said. I'm putting together a timeline of his last two weeks, and I think I've got it. But you two were supposed to have spent about two hours together, is that right? Yeah, Dan said. We didn't start arguing. You know how Mikey is. Came in and said he'd seen my last show and he had some ideas. Damn it, they weren't good ones. I mean, the guy knows the business. Knew, he said quietly. Knew the business. I guess I was mad at him because he was taking all that talent and knowledge to someone who was just going to use it to fuck me over. What happened to him was all kinds of messed up. He sat there. For the first time since I'd known him, he looked old, tired, worn out. I knew he was in his sixties at the very least, but he always looked like he could throw on tights and get back in the ring if he needed to. But not now. It wasn't the years that made him look old, but the toll of those years. Mikey wasn't the first of us to die, but for some reason his death was hitting us harder than the others. I sat down on a folding chair next to him and said, Did he seem in any way like he was using? I don't think so, Dan said. I knew when he was messed up, but I don't know from heroin. I know when a guy's been drinking too much and when he's deep in it. I thought he was just drinking a lot. He sat there for a minute longer, shaking his head, and finally said, I'm sure he wasn't using when I saw him. That was the day before he passed, so that means something, right? I don't know, I said. Was it just you and him? Gene was there for some of it, he said, but when I started to get hot, he took off. Not that I blame him. He's seen me hot more than enough. We talked a bit longer, more about the business than anything, and I told him for the last time that there was no way I was going to get in the ring, say hello to the crowd, do a job as a referee, or anything else. He just smiled and said, I gotta ask, you know, the crowd always loved you, even when they hated you. I smiled and said, I know, but I have to leave it where it was. In the past, I do this now. I should have a worker who's a detective-type character, he said. Maybe you could give me some ideas. Dan, do you have any idea how long I'd have to sleep on the couch if I did anything here other than my job? Dan smiled and gave me a big slap on the back. It's good to see that you and Katie are still making things work. She was a little weird for my taste, but you kids today, the things you think are cool kid, I thought to myself. I was rounding the bend and about to hit 40 soon. When I woke up in the morning, last thing I felt like was a damn kid. Still, I knew what he meant. First time I took Katie over to meet the parents, I thought my mom was going to collapse and the minute Katie was out of eyesight. The tattoos were enough to get me a stern talking to. She still doesn't know how to deal with the piercings. Dad waited until mom was far enough away that she couldn't hear, and he asked her if she was a monster in the sack.
It's not something I was expecting to hear from my dad. Then again, since she is, I didn't know how to answer him. I still don't. Dan excused himself, and as soon as he got back to the locker room, he, I heard him shout, The hell's going on in here? Why aren't you pansies ready for the matches? The ring isn't set up, and we got people coming in in an hour. I want to see asses and elbows, or somebody's going home without a pay envelope. I got up and saw that Gene was talking with a couple of the workers. I called him over, and he said, What can I help you with? I was talking to your dad about when Mikey came by, the day before he died, and he said you were there for some of it. Yeah, Gene said, still, until Dad started ranting about how Brad was going to destroy the business, how Mikey was stabbing him in the back. I knew what Dad would say. I also knew that if Mikey listened to him, he'd be the dumbest thing he could possibly do, so I found some other way to keep myself busy. If I would have known it was the last time I saw Mikey, I would have... He trailed off and I waited, not saying anything. I let the silence hang heavy in the air. It didn't take Gene long to fill it would have told him not to pay any attention to my old man. Money was better than he ever could have made around here. Workers aren't supposed to know, but we're probably shutting down in a few months if we don't get attendance up. I've got a job at a dealership selling cars. Dad still comes into the office every day and treats it like everything's fine. I've looked at the books, and to be honest, I don't know how he came up with the money to book this place. Maybe he'll pay him out of the gate. No, nobody lets him do that anymore. He burned too many places with that one. That's why we're in Bloomington instead of Minneapolis or St. Paul. He pulled that crap on buildings the same way he pulled it on workers. Gene shook his head. Five years ago, we were on top. We sold out the Civic Center and the Met Center, and now we're in an armory in front of the people on folding chairs trying to make money by bringing our own hot dogs and soda. Is it true about how the promotions hate Brad, I asked? I don't know, Gene said. Everything's a work anymore. I heard the guys in Georgia and the Carolinas put together a bunch of money to have someone bum-rush the ring and break his champion's leg before one of the televised shows, but when I watched it, everything was smooth as silk. Brad may not know the business, but he knows how to put together TV, and that show went off without a hitch. How about your dad? Do you think he'd do anything? He talks a big game, but other than stretching guys in the ring, he doesn't have that kind of fire. I knew about how he would stretch guys in the ring. People think it's all fake, but Dan and the other guys who've been in the business a long time knew how to put you in a hold or a series of holds that would really injure you. They usually did it when guys weren't doing what they were told or break one of the rules of the locker room. They always had shooters, legitimate tough guys who would be brought in to beat the hell out of guys who'd broken rules or done something the promoter felt deserved a beating, but they were still able to make money off the wrestler. Dan was well known as a guy who could take someone, even now, and put them in a legitimate hold that could hurt or cripple them if he wanted. It's how he kept order and power in the old days, but now it's just a story the workers told each other to make the locker room more interesting. So when he said he'd kill Mikey for going to work for Brad, I didn't even get to finish before Gene said in a harsh whisper, he didn't say that. He never would have said that. He's a hothead, but my dad would never do anything like that to him. He loved Mikey. We all did. And if you asked him after a few beers, he'd probably tell you he was jealous that Mikey was getting a nice payday. If Dad had a little less pride, he'd probably be angling for some sort of deal, or he'd just outright sell his territory and tape library to Brad. Sorry, I said, knowing I needed to push again to get more information about what Dan and Mikey had talked about. Gene was the guy who would talk without knowing what he'd given away. 
He was always wanting to get approval by the workers and knew the only reason he had his spot was because his dad owned the business. Still, he wasn't some spoiled little bastard. He was a nice guy who did his best to help the other workers. I'd known other family members and other federations who'd gotten a plum spot and felt that because of that they were smarter than everybody else in the room. My dad wouldn't have anything to do with anything that would have hurt Mikey. So you think someone hurt Mikey? Gene looked around and seeing that the workers were coming in the locker room, he motioned for me to come into the back of the room that Dan was using for his office before he started talking again. I know Mikey wouldn't use again, not of his own free will. I just know he wouldn't. He shot the heroin, I said, and Gene cut me off again. That's the other thing. He never shot heroin. He hated needles. Said he got it in his system faster if he snorted it. I know it sounds crazy, but someone must have done it to him. I finished writing my notes and said, Do you have any suspicion of who it could have been? No, he said quietly, looking at the floor as if he'd been yelled at by his dad for another blown spot or a bad match. I don't have anything to back it up. But if you could find something... I'm looking, I said. So you don't think he overdosed himself? I don't know what I think yet, I said. Two weeks ago I thought he'd just fallen off the wagon. Now I'm open to some other hypotheses. He looked around as if he was being taped and could see the microphone if he looked hard enough. I know the guys in Brad's Federation do a lot of drugs. I've heard stories about steroids being passed around like it's a buffet and they coke up in the locker room. Maybe someone with Brad was involved, but you didn't hear it from me. I nodded and said, I may have some questions later, but I think I have a good idea of the time Mikey spent with Dan. Did they stay in Dan's office the whole time? No, he said. Mikey showed up around lunchtime, and I think they planned to go out to Perkins or something. I didn't go along with them, but they didn't get into the argument until they got back. I guess Dad wanted the free meal. I have never known Dan to turn down free food, I said with a smile. Gene shook my hand and said he had to get back to work. I followed him until he left the locker room and started to help the ring crew set everything up. It was taking a lot longer than I remembered, but when I looked out of the locker room I saw the crew was mostly young kids. If the oldest one there was fifteen I'd be amazed, and not one of them had to be taught how to use a razor yet. The locker room was filling up, and the workers who hadn't seen me when I showed up all came over and shook my hand when they did. That's part four. Part five will be in two weeks. We have ads, and here they are. Yes, here at Solitaire Rose Networks, we have ads. That's right, we have ads. Just like every other podcast. Come on, it's okay. Our first advertiser is our longest-running advertiser, and that's DreamHost.com. DreamHost.com is the best bar none web host all over the interwebs. You could go to other web hosts. You could go to the ones that have big ads on TV and everything, and they're not going to give you the service, the dependability, and and the reliability of DreamHost. Head on over to DreamHost.com, use the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, and get $20 off your first year of web hosting. Another of our sponsors is Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club has great blades at low prices, and let's face it, you gotta shave. Head over to shaved.by slash C19DC, get you some blades, they're wonderful, I use them, I use all of our sponsors. Matter of fact, head on over to crazycomics.com, over on the right hand side of the page you'll see all of our sponsors, Bombas, Grays, Flaviar, Dollar Shave Club, and Dreamhost. 
If you would like to advertise on any of the podcasts in the Solitaire Rose Network, you can just email solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com, subject advertising. And my first book is out. That's right. No, 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 it's not one of the ebooks of the uh, novel cast. Those are still coming. This is the collected edition of the first 100 strips of the comic strip I do called Worldwide News. You could go look at it at worldwidenews.solitairerose.com. But this is the book that collects the first 100 strips. It's got background information. It's got um, commentary on each strip, lots of extras. It's available for $10 plus shipping and handling. And you can get it from lordshadowflame at gmail.com. And I'd really appreciate it if you'd head over there and buy a copy. And that's it for Novelcast. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks with the next part of Do the Job.